This is the Cigar Snob Podcast, and I am Nick Jimenez. On this episode of the podcast, we are bringing you the first part of our publisher, Eric Calvino's interview with Benji Menendez. I think that maybe I jump in once or twice in this chat. Benji is one of the living legends of the cigar industry, both for his cigar pedigree, we'll get into a little bit of that in this conversation, and his own illustrious career in cigar making. Again, we're going to talk a lot about that. Benji retired recently, but there is no stopping a lifelong cigar maker when he wants to talk tobacco. Case in point, Benji didn't have to do this at all, but he came by the cigar snob offices to talk for close to two hours, and that's just the time we had the mics on. You obviously won't see this, but at various points in the interview, Eric and I couldn't help looking over at each other with some amazement. We've been at this a while, but never in all the time that we've been doing these podcasts or even the long-form interviews that we do for the print magazine have we learned so much in one sit-down with one person. All that is to say that if you love cigars, you'll want to listen closely to our interview with Benji Menendez, which starts, as you will hear in a moment, with Benji in the middle of some casual wisdom bombs that we just didn't want to leave out of the recording. So we will uh, we'll start with Benji kind of mid-thought, uh, and then we will awkwardly transition to my attempt to gracefully, uh, you know, start the interview officially. So anyway, enjoy, and uh, we will be back in a few days with the second part of this interview with Benji Menendez. It's Corojo. Yeah. Where does Corojo start from? Connecticut. The original Corojo yeah. rap, uh, seed is from the Connecticut. Seed, the seed started with Connecticut. That's crazy. But then... There are other things together with that. Uh, hybridized. It's grown in San Luis Pinar del Rio, and it's added Cuban blood to the to the tobacco. So there are a lot of things that change from the original. And I'm going back to 1951. Are you recording? Yep. Which is the first time that I saw uh, Corojo. In you could. Put it right next to, take a hand of Corojo and a hand of Connecticut. You put them one next to each other, you couldn't tell them apart because they were originally the same seed. Yeah. Now, there is one thing about <coughs> seeds. In a seed, you get all the traits of the tobacco. You have the size, you have the color, you have the veins, you have all these things. But one thing you don't get is the taste. That's why Connecticut from Ecuador is one thing. Connecticut from uh, Connecticut, it's something else. So you're always getting different taste, even though we call it Connecticut. Mm. But the taste is different. I love that. Because the soil is different. And, you know, we're accustomed to consume... Uh, vegetables, fruits, uh, in a very generic way. We talk about a banana. And when you go to the supermarket and you buy a banana, you don't see if it's a banana from Ecuador, from Dominican Republic, from Guatemala, or yeah. it's just a banana. And you eat it. Yeah, it's a, it's, Without, and as a matter of fact, with bananas, it's one variety of banana. It's the Cavendish banana. That's the are, one we, we always are, get. There are a whole number of varieties. I know, but we only get, in this country, the majority of it, the overwhelming majority is Cavendishes. It's one varietal, but it tastes very different from country to country. But there's the only two products, or the only two areas, whether you really go for the taste, and, of course, 
for the groin area. It's tobacco and wine. Yep. Because it is not the same as when you ask for a bottle of wine, you ask for a bottle of wine, whether it's Chianti or it's Rioja or it's Bordeaux. It's you're asking for something specific. And likewise with tobacco with cigars. Yeah. You're gonna go for certain things that will accommodate your palate better than anything else. So you have those are the only two products. The rest you say oranges. Okay. Yeah. Orange from like a commodity. Orange from Florida. <laughs> orange from Brazil. Yeah. But you don't make that difference. Mm. In wine and tobacco, we do. And we really try to make the best of it. But again, those are two products that you ferment and you age. And you, the way you age them makes a difference. Yes. And that is why tobacco and wine have a lot of similarities. They are not identical, but they have a lot of similarities. So with that... That was the most informative, cold open, <laughs> pre-introduction that we've done on this show. <laughs> that was awesome. That was good. Uh, and we learned about bananas. Yeah, we learned about bananas. And we learned about, we, so you're re- everybody who's listening to this is ready to buy cigars and produce all of a sudden. And a bottle of wine. Let me tell you one thing. After 62 years uh-huh. in the industry, and I started... In July of sixty-two or fifty-two, and retired. Whether you call it December thirty-first, thirteen, or January first, fourteen, yeah. <laughs> it's the same. Right. That's the day I retired. So, I I have really enjoyed all this tobaccos that I have mm-hmm. the pleasure to work with. And believe me, I've been to so many places, and I have expri- ex- uh, tasted so many different tobaccos. That is a really something mm-hmm. that will always be with me. Yeah. And I have tried, believe me, I have tried to say, no, I don't want to know anything about tobacco. I want, I'm out. Just can't it do it. always pulls you no back escape. in. There's Just no can't escape. do it. And I'm not more involved. Because I can't move. You see me with a walking stick. Well, that is, I'm not very mobile, (laughs) but I'll do my best. You can do the smoking part. I still smoke. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. Well, the, the, the very I last still, part of the process. I still smoke. Over it. Thank God. So let's, uh, just by way of, of introduction here, just because I feel like we, we should do that, no? Yeah. So this is the Cigar Snob Podcast. Uh, I am Nick Jimenez, and I'm here with our publisher, Eric Calvino. Hello, y'all. And we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Benji Menendez, who is here in the... Uh, in the studio slash office slash cafeteria yes <laughs> at cigar snob magazine um so benji thank you very much for for coming and, and joining i'm us the here. one who thank you well you don't thank me i thank you <laughs> no, thank you. i'm here. thanking you because you showed up and we yes. got we got cigars and an extra and an extra cafetazo that's right so, <laughs> so we're, we're walk re- through the door is cafe boom reaping the benefits here already um <laughs> so uh 
for for people who are unfamiliar, you know, because we find that people who listen to this uh, to this show are sometimes people who have never opened a magazine uh, about cigars before, and so maybe they smoke, but they don't know a lot of the characters and the personalities and the the cigar makers in the business. Let's kind of go through some of of your own biography and history, and let's start with your family's history in the cigar business. Well, <clears throat> I was born in 1936. And my father started Monte Cristo and A. Chapman in about 35, 34, 35. So you showed up just in time. I'm, I'm the last of the Cuban manufacturers. Yeah. They are all dead or went into other businesses. So I'm the last of the, of the Cuban cigar manufacturers. And I'm saying this, Cuba had six main factories. And Melendez Garcia was the largest of the of the six, and I'm the last one because everybody else has passed away. I'm an old man, <laughs> so I can still enjoy life. But a lot of them have gone into something else, and I'm really sorry to see all these leaves of the tree fall because they were my friends. Yeah. And I, one thing I have to say, in all the cigar manufacturers that I have known in my life, they have all been very, very nice people and we have had a very, very good relationship. Even though on the marketplace, we might fight each other <laughs> like mad dogs, yep. but in the operations, we are very, very close. Yeah. And we help each other in whichever way we can. It's something we always talk about here, uh, that it's so interesting how helpful uh, cigar companies and cigar manufacturers are with each other on the, not on the front lines in the marketplace, but behind the scenes. Right. Uh, and, it's, and it's very interesting and a, and a unique aspect of this business that I think yeah. Most consumers don't get to see. Yeah, you figure in, in Detroit, the people at GM aren't sending somebody over to Florida. I mean, I don't know they have some extra belts over yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> you guys need it. A lot of people yeah. really don't want to see it. Right. I mean, I don't mean the manufacturers. We will still show our face of the competition. But we have another area in which I have been with uh, friends of mine, manufacturers. I have been to their factories. I have been to their homes. We have eaten together. We have drank together. We have been kicked out of some place together. (laughs) (laughs) And Avo, if he listens to this, he will know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But that has been life. And we have an area where we fight. But in the companies, in the operations, we are very close friends. Yeah. Very close friends. Uh, of the of the manufacturers that are in the market still today, who would you say are are your closest friends now of, of the guys who are left? Because this is a, 
a younger generation that is making cigars now. But there's still some some gentlemen that are still from the old school. Well, I, I can I can talk about Maroro Quesada. Yep. I can talk about Guillermo Leon. I can talk about <clears throat> Henke Kellner. I mean, they are they are very close friends of mine, and I I really enjoy their company, and especially when I sit with somebody like Henke Kellner. He is. Unbelievable. I mean, his knowledge is very, very good. And one thing that I have to say, we created Pro Cigar years ago, and it all started because Vanolo Casal and myself, we used to play tennis every day, or every day that we were in Dominican Republic, because sometimes he was traveling, sometimes I was traveling, so it was not that we could do it every day, but as often as we could, we did. And in coming home after playing tennis one day, we started talking about what was happening with the cigar manufacturers in Dominican Republic. In Dominican Republic at the time, we were only about 13 or 14 cigar manufacturers. And all of a sudden, there was a, a deluge of people. Wait, what year is this? Oh, we're going back time? to 74. And for, okay. for for context, we should get into just the, the beginning, yeah. the beginning of the of the of the boom, and there were a lot of people who came to the country to make cigars. Some of them didn't know what in the world they were getting into, but they said, "Hey, that's a good business. That's making money. That's a big boom. Let's get into it. That's a gold rush. On the gold rush, a lot of people didn't make money. <laughs> there were a lot of uh, people who <laughs> passed away without the money. Yeah, and and this thing happened the same thing. A lot of people didn't make the money, but they ruined the business for many people. So what we got together and said, <coughs> we have to defend the cigar industry. And that's how Pro Cigar started. So we got together, all the different manufacturers, and we started building up the, the organization. And unfortunately, I'm not able to travel anymore, but I love all the time that I spent with them. Because a lot of times we met for some business that we had to take care of us. But then afterwards, we would talk about things of the industry, of the cigars, of the tobacco, and you learned a lot from these meetings, just sitting there and listening to them. And I think it was a great thing. And it could have been even better, but a lot of things happened. And with the boom ending, in 2000, 1999, 2000, the boom ended. And it left a lot of people uncertain about what the future was going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, we're back to a normal state of affairs. Yeah. And we can, we can live with it. And I'm sorry, as I said, that I can't make it to Pro Cigar, the festival, because I don't, I don't travel too well. And the last uh, thing that I went to, 
was the IPCPR in Vegas two, three years ago. And I knew from then on that I couldn't go on. As a matter of fact, I used to go almost every year. I used to go with my wife, yeah. our vacation, on a cruise. The last time we came home, my wife said, no more. No yeah, more. she told me the story. We don't, <laughs> we don't have, we don't have the age to keep on going, and you cannot travel. And that is true, because she's a very active woman. To her, going a staircase—that's her life. To me, I take an elevator. It's a big challenge. <laughs> I'm lazy. <laughs> she told me that. Uh, that you were Mahalero on the last cruise. <laughs> Mahalero. On the I've been told many things. I think um, before we move on, because we, we usually will let the audience know what we're smoking. Uh, and so we'll start with, with me and Eric because I'm interested to end on what Benji thinks of what, what, what you're smoking. So I am smoking this Oil de Monterrey Excalibur Natural and... And I'm smoking the Maluro version the, of it. The Maluro. That were brought in by Benji. Correct. So thank you very much, Benji, for these cigars. And Benji, no, you're... No, I, I wanted you guys to smoke them, to try them and, 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 and see what we're doing, what not we are doing. <laughs> I'm not doing anything. It's, it's hard to get out of that in your head. <laughs> but, I know. You know, it's very hard for me to get out yeah. of General Cigar. <laughs> a lot of times... And we'll, and we'll get into that. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of times I, I still talk about General Cigar as if, as if I am there. Right. And my wife says to me, hey, you're not there anymore. What's the matter <laughs> with you? Let it go. <laughs> okay. uh, and then you are smoking Sin Compromiso, which was our number one cigar of the year. He gave me a cigar. Yeah. And it's a very good cigar. You're enjoying it. I like it. it. I, I think it's very good. And I like that white, white ash. Mm-hmm. Although I have to tell you one thing about the, the white ash. It means nothing. It means nothing, because if the white ash was so exceptional, then Cuban cigars would be awful. Right. Because Cuban cigars are a lead color ash. Yeah, they're they're not white. They're like a gray, like a graphite looking. <laughs> I ash. call it lead color. Yeah. Because that's that's what I what I see. So it's plomo. not it plomo. So I don't see that white. So it doesn't it's just mean, aesthetically pleasing, but it, it doesn't mean much. No. But Except it's interesting that even that even someone who knows how little it means, that's one of the things that jumps out aesthetically. Just visually, it's nice to look at. Well, but you see, here's where marketing takes place, uh-huh. and they they want to use they want to use those things as something good mm-hmm. for the cigar. And the only thing I say is look good. Yeah, it looks good. Uh, <laughs> looks good. I, I'm more. I'm more interested in terms of the ash. I'm more interested in in how tight, how tight it is, how compact it is, than in, than the color. Uh, well, more concerned me personally. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I am. Um, I come from a different source, and my beginning was Cuba. Right. So when you talk about Cuba, the color of the cigars are not that important. Right. But, I mean, they were important, of course, because 
you wanted all the boxes to look the same and you wanted a lot of things. Right. But today, Maduro is a, is a, is a very important cigar. Well, in Cuba, Maduro was not that important. Right. So, and even even the way that that those terms are used, we were actually talking about this maybe a day or two ago. The uh, the the fact that Maduro is one of these words that's sort of thrown around very casually because sometimes <laughs> people use it, and there's not a natural version of the same wrapper available. And no, maybe you're referring <clears throat> to a specific varietal. Uh, and it's a, it's a very difficult I, thing to keep track of. I remember I remember going back to 1957, the crop of uh, Corojo, 1957, and Menendez Garcia used to buy the largest amount of Corojo wrapper of any manufacturer. And I remember that year, we got only 11 bales of Maduro tobacco, mm. 11 bales, which we set aside and we started aging them. Then all of a sudden, uh, it was taken over. What happened to that tobacco? I don't have the slightest idea. Yeah. You know, another funny thing about cigars today, the cigars years ago, when you look at all the labels, cigarettes or cigars, they all had one word in common, mild. Mm -hmm. Today we don't use that word. Right. Because it's a bad word. Today what we want to use is macho, strong, full body. Bold. Say. I'm going to say not enough people use macho. I, I, <laughs> I would love to see I, macho used more. I, I, I really, and I'm, Maybe I'm not the greatest cigar smoker in the world, but I like one thing about a cigar. The flavor. Mm -hmm. I don't care much about strength. The flavor, the taste of the cigar. How does it taste? Then you can play around with the, with the strength. Mm -hmm. I agree. But the main thing is flavor. And that is where... The old Cuban cigars yeah. had a, a big step up. Yeah, that's a very old school Cuban mentality, yeah. what you're talking about. And, yeah. and it's something that here in, in this magazine, I think we're a little bit different than other publications in that we value those old school Cuban uh, philosophy of making cigars, right? right? The, the way that, that cigars were, were designed, it wasn't about strength, right? And so flavor and aroma and balance were, were the big three. That's the thing. Yeah. You have mentioned <clears throat> the things that we were looking for. Yep. Not strength. Because, I mean, when you look at what the blends were, one very important thing when you look at a, a tobacco plant, and it's one of the crazy things that goes on in when you look at a plant of tobacco, you have the lower part, volado, yep. the center, seco, at the top, ligero. That is a very rough way of yeah. describing almost, it. Almost generalizing. Yeah. But 
just for that purpose. When you look at it, and you say, what percentage of that tobacco plant is ligero, strength? Only 30%. So how can you make a cigar? <laughs> a strong cigar with only 30%. So what's happening is that today's world is different and they may look for Ligero, where there is maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe a Ligero. But that's, and I can understand. Today, in Cuba, we were not allowed to import tobacco. Today, that world has changed also. Right. And uh, with the revolution, a lot of things changed. And when they were running out of tobacco, they would import tobacco from somewhere else. But they will never accept that, or admit that, <laughs> or, or admit but, it. Right. But I'm saying, I'm saying this: in the in the manufacturing today, we are able to import tobaccos from different parts of the world, and that we can make the blends to what we think it should be, or what we think that a consumer wants. Yep. Well, for the consumer, because. Yep. The manufacturer depends exclusively, exclusively on the yeah. consumer. <laughs> If the consumer says no, I don't care what you do, it's not going to be. Yeah. It's not going to be it. So you, But you depend on the consumer, and we can then take different uh, pro, uh, products from different countries to be able to put in your blend to achieve that blend yeah. to give what the consumer wants. In Cuba, we were not that... that uh, You didn't have that luxury. Not culture. Yeah. But we were looking for flavor. Yeah. That was a, the number one word, was flavor, not strength. A lot of people talk about Cuban tobacco being strong. Hey, I have sm smoked many, yeah, many Cuban cigars. Different brands, different manufacturers. No. No, strength is not the thing. Yeah. They are not that strong. So in, in what year was it that you leave Cuba? I left Cuba in 1960. Okay, so at the time... Uh, the, the company was taken over right. September 15th, 1960. Right. And I left Cuba <coughs> December, uh, November 26th, okay. 1960. So at the time of the revolution, how would you describe the state of the company at that time? Very good. I don't know if you uh, if you have a book which is called The Industries in Cuba of 1958. And you can look at the different companies, not only tobacco, but anything else, anything else, sugar, everything that Cuba produced. You could read in this in this book how they were working. Mm. And the company, our company, was doing very good. Yeah. We were the largest company. And we were very scared when, in 1959, at the end of 59, we had to increase price on our largest settler, which was Obman or Monte Cristo number four. 
So at the time of the revolution, at the time of the revolution, you're was already at increasing the prices. We increased the price. Yeah, from twenty-five cents mm-hmm. to thirty cents. Which percentage-wise, that's wow. a big jump. <laughs> and we were, and we were very, very concerned because it was a huge price increase. What, what drove the price increase? A bit, but what drove that price increase? The, the cost, cost of goods, the, 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 the cost, everything, yeah. everything that was happening. Uh, you know, <clears throat> at the time, going back to 1959. And that's where it started to go south. At the time, a Cuban peso was one dollar. Mm-hmm. And we would pay our people very high uh, Wages. rates. You know, when you talk about six and a half, forty-two, Cervantes, or number one, we would, we would pay $73 per thousand to the cigar roller. $73. Now, uh, one thing to also keep in mind when you're doing that math, whoever's listening, uh, you guys in Cuba back then, you would have one buncher and roller. It was the, the one person managed the entire process. In our so company, it wasn't a pair like they are in Nicaragua or the Dominican Republic today. In, so. our company, in our company, we did not have molds. Everything was strictly by hand. You did not use molds. We did not have molds. We started molds. We started molds towards the end of 1959 to give the old cigar makers a longer lease in life because the, the, the retirement, the pensions in Cuba were very, very poor. So you had a man that worked in your factory 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. He was too old to keep on working because as time went by, their quality of manufacturers were coming well, down. Yeah, when you're not using molds, your hands need to be very strong. And, and then you were, you were losing. Yeah. And was, you this, were losing. was this just your company that wasn't using molds or the standard across the industry was no molds? No, no, no. There were some that were already okay. more advanced, but I, I will tell you something about this. <laughs> There were some companies that were more advanced in the use of, of molds, but we were the last ones to stay with the old system. Yeah. And we started the molds to prolong the life of the old cigar rollers. And I was in charge of that operation. Now, you were a young man at this point. I was, you were I was in 21, mid-20s, yeah. 21, 20s. 22 years old. Look at that. So let me, say, let me say this. You know the guy who taught me to use molds? The name of the guy? Ramon Cifuentes. Good Lord. Wow. Ramon Cifuentes. Cifuentes. Yeah, we got was it. Our, <laughs> was our, our biggest competitor. And he showed, he taught you how to use molds. But well, I let's, always, tell, let's tell the listeners with Ramon Cifuentes. But I always had a very good relationship with mm-hmm. the Cifuentes family. And, well, most of them are already dead. But I still remember them with a lot of affection. And this is, this is one thing that he taught me how to use molds. And I went to the factory and I started teaching people 
how to use mold. Yeah. And and so for for those that don't know, Ramon Cifuentes was the owner of Partagas. Of Partagas. Yeah. So this so, is uh, whenever you see Partagas labels, as it says, says uh, Cifuentes Cifuente Compañía. Compañía. That's right. Right. So you you have that Cifuentes. As, as I said, he was our biggest competitor. Your biggest competitor, of course. And yet... So that illustrates your earlier point. Perfectly. What I said at the beginning, mm-hmm. our relationship in this country, we were market, fighting yeah. like dogs. But in the operations, what he needed, I would give. What I needed, he would give me. So we have no problem with that. <clears throat> and this is, this is the thing that has always been very characteristic mm-hmm. about our relationship with all these manufacturers. Yeah. And, you know, talking talking about it in the context of the Cuban Revolution... Before the Cuban Revolution. I think it's interesting that the cigar industry, even then, was sort of an example of the fact that, that you didn't need a socialist revolution to come in and no. foster <laughs> this cooperation among people who were competing with one yeah. another. You know, we also had, besides the, f- the cigar factory, we had a cigarette factory. A guy in a machine making cigarettes. He would make between 100 and $125 a week. When I came to work in the United States, and I worked for Philip Morris selling cigarettes in Miami, Thanks to Joe Kuhlman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was making $75 a week. That's crazy. So you compare <laughs> what the situation was in Cuba. Today, what does a Cuban engineer make? It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Wait, what does he make as an engineer or what does he make as a taxi driver? Because that's probably what he's... They... They don't make money. I they, know. I know. Yeah, what is it, 20, 25 a month? But it's, everything is government. Right. Everything is owned by the government. <clears throat> so, so so that was the, the state. So the company was doing very well at the time of the very revolution. Very well. And, very well, thank um, God. So then tell me about uh, what your experience was of the decision to leave Cuba. The decision to leave Cuba, first of all, was... Our lawyer, who's passed away now, they had rest in peace, came to my father. Our company was taken over on a Friday, and we were immediately suspended from, and we were called uh, on that on that Friday uh, <clears throat> for the interventor to draw up in a, in a, a letter in which they were taken over and that's that's it yeah you're out now I was suspended and I went home what an insane feeling that must be for someone else to step into your company. Hey, you're suspended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what, that? what are you talking no, about? No, 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 no. It was the takeover by the government. No, no, I know. So you don't, so you don't 
say anything. You it, say, yes, sir. Of course. Yeah, no, of course. You, yeah, I'm sure you know what to say, but just internally, the, the, the dialogue is like, where, how then, does this even get here? You know? I, I went home, and my, our lawyer told my father, get out of here, because you're a capitalist, and they're going to go for you. So my father, that, that Saturday, got on a plane and left, and he came to Miami. And, and then later on, what were we going to do? We left. Mm-hmm. I mean, first my mother and my younger brothers. Later on, my wife, my three kids, and myself, we left. My, my kids, my daughter, which is the oldest, was two years old in Miami. She came with one year or something. And my boys, are twins, they were seven months old. But I tell the story, and you know, there were 20 million, or not 20 million because there are not that many humans, <laughs> but 2 million, 2 million stories yeah. about the same mm-hmm. from the Cubans that left. I came to this country with $5. That's all the money I had. Yeah. I, I didn't have any, any more money. And I went to live with my with my father, my mother, my grandmother. We were all in a house. And, you know, we were, on Christmas Day, we were asked, because we, at the time, <clears throat> the houses were rented with a, on, the, on the contract said how many people you were allowed to have on the house. So my father, my mother, my grandmother, my three brothers, six people. All of a sudden, the lady who owned the house came to the house on Christmas Eve. And Christmas Eve to us Cubans is a very important date. And we were all together. And... She talked to one of my younger brothers, who already spoke some English. I said, how many of you are living here? She said, oh, all of us. <laughs> all the people are here. <laughs> she made a beeline for my father and said, you have one week to move out of here. Because the contract said six, and you have more than 12. I got to say, even as a, I don't know where this landlord was from, but. Even as a Cuban, that sounds like too many Cubans. <laughs> <laughs> well, then we started looking for a house. And the houses all said, no kids, no dogs. <laughs> well, we didn't have a dog, so no But what were we going to do with the kids? Throw them to the sea? Right. Well, finally, we got a house at a very good price, very expensive mm-hmm. house. In Maynada Street, Coral Gable. And my father, this was uh, from that time on, my father started getting worried. He says, I don't have money to keep everybody here. I mean, we have to move on, go back to Spain, because Spain was cheaper than living in Miami. Yeah. 
<clears throat> and that's why they went to they went to to Madrid. And later on, it was started the factory in Canary Islands and all that. But you know, at, at the time, it was some very difficult times. But we have, there's always a silver lining in all these things. And yes, they were hard times, very hard times. But then we started the factory in Canary Islands. And at the beginning, the first uh, tobacco we used was Cuban tobacco. Because Spain could get all the Cuban tobaccos they wanted. So that was not a, a problem. So we started, and at the time, the embargo was not set yet. Embargo was set in February. <clears throat> so we were sending cigars to, and we were doing very good. Very, very good. We started Canary Islands with four, and I mean four, cigar rollers. When I left the company in uh, 80... 81, I think it was. I got to think about it. We had 750. Wow. We had grown tremendously. We were the number one company in the United States, tobacco cigars. As a matter of fact, we were more than 55% of the total tobacco imports. Sorry. Also cigar imports into the United States, including all the little cigars from Germany or from Holland, or including that, we were bigger than any of us. So cigars were, were not broken out from machine-made to handmade, or yes? Oh, yes, they were. Okay, so you're talking in handmade cigars, you guys made up 55% of the market? But but the thing was... <clears throat> that's. But the thing was that at the time, it was including those little machine-made cigars. Oh, so that's what I was asking. That's even everything. Yeah, and it was fifty-five percent. Again, wow. The market in the United States was not very large. Okay. Later on, it started growing. This is uh, what year were we talking? Eighty. Uh, I came in. Uh, I came. We started in Canary Islands. In 72, in, sorry. 62. 60, 62. And that's when I came, because I first went to training for training at American Machine and Foundry for the machine-made cigars. What was happening, and we thought that was the way it was going to happen, the big production of Tampa, which was big, it was huge compared to Cuba. It was huge. It was machine-made cigars mostly. Long filler machine-made cigars. The majority of the Tampa production was machine-made? Yep. Okay. You don't see that anymore, but at the time, that was it was. So we brought in machinery to Canary Islands thinking that the industry was going to go that way. It didn't. Yeah. It went to handmaids. <laughs> and 
the beauty of Canary Islands was that it was a free port. We could import anything we wanted at a very, very small duty. Duty was nothing, like 3 5%, nothing. But that was Canary Islands at the and time. So you started using uh, mostly Cuban tobacco. And brought then from, when does the... Brought from the United States. We bought it in the United States and brought it to Canary Islands and, and uh, shipped from there. And then... Uh, then Tell me, tell you know, give us a, a sense of how that shift happened. So you stopped using Cuban tobacco. Obviously, the embargo uh, obviously has something to do with this. But when, then, when the embargo yeah, was set, that story. When the embargo was set, I was given the instructions to look for a blend of non-Cuban tobaccos who would come as close to Cuban tobaccos as possible. Okay. And I said, I've never seen any tobacco, I don't know, where in the world do they grow tobacco? <laughs> Except Cuba. <laughs> yeah, when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. <laughs> but, again, at the time I was 26 years old. So, anytime any of the tobacco brokers came to Canary Islands, they would come to visit us, and they said, have you ever tried tobacco from X? I said, no, I didn't know they even had tobacco. I said, well, they do. I said, why don't you try it? Send me a sample. So, at a time, I had over 150 samples of different tobaccos. And <clears throat> Antonio Fernandez, better known as Nico, and I were smoking those cigars, those tobaccos. We made them into cigars and we smoked them. Yeah. No, hey, this might be this. So at the end, we made a blend. A blend which was uh, Olor Tobacco from Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. Dominican didn't have human seed at the time. The only tobacco they had was Olor. Yeah, they didn't have Piloto yet. Piloto was not in yet. Yeah. Piloto came in later on. And Brazilian, Matanorte which is, to me, the best tobacco in Brazil. <laughs> but, that, but I digress. <laughs> there is a difference. And the uh, problem with uh, Mata Norte is that you don't get enough. So eventually we had to go into Matafina, and that is where the final blend was, Mata, uh, Olor and Matafina. But it was doing very, very good. Then we... Now, what brand uh, was this being sold as at the time? At the beginning, it was Flamenco, and then we came out with Don Diego. But then we had uh, Dunhill wanted a cigar also. And we offered them several op options of what we had. They rejected all of them. Though they wanted a dark cigar, they wanted, okay. In the meantime, in a, in a cocktail party in, uh, in Madrid, our president, Jose Manuel Garcia González, met with the people from uh, Simpson and Threshy. In 
They asked him, Pepe, have you ever used Cameroon tobacco? I said, no, no. Well, why don't you try it? I said, well, send a sample. Now, before that, I have received many samples of Cameroon tobacco. But you got to go back. You got to go back to the 60s. And there was no DHL or any of that type of overnight deliveries. So what they did was they sent me in a large envelope samples of uh, of Cameroon. But Cameroon is a very brittle tobacco. Yeah. So what they did is they put some moisture on it. Seven or eight days later, that smelled like... Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Let's we have to learn it. how to spell that so we yeah. can put that in the tasting Let's put language. an H on it. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was very bad, so I rejected it. Every time they said me, I rejected I rejected Then all of a sudden, I, ha- I get a sample of Cameroon from Triumphant Presci. But what is a sample? I usually had out a sample as a hand. Yep. 20 By the way, for, for people who don't understand, a hand is really five leaves of tobacco just kind of held it's together. It's what, what fits in your hand. Correct. And what I got was 21 bales. Good Lord. I think they wanted your business. When I got... <laughs> When I got, no, but this was, wait a minute, they sent a bill with it. <laughs> That's not a sample. <laughs> That's not a sample. <laughs> they sent the bill with it. And when I looked at that, I said, hey, I did order this, and we don't have the money. Because the price at the time was also $21 a pound. Back then? Well, that has changed, but... Twenty-one dollars, twenty-one bales, at a hundred and sixty pounds a bale. Yeah, do the, the math. amount of money. I, I just, I, I when I saw that, I said, I, I just can't. Yeah, can't, your knees got a little weak. Can't have that. So I called Madrid. <laughs> at the time, telephone calls were not like today that you. You order a, a, a number. I say, okay, there was a delay of three hours or four hours. So you sat all that time next to the telephone waiting for the, uh, your turn. Finally, I got my call through. I said, Pepe, this came in. I didn't order it, and the price is outrageous. So... What? What are we gonna do with this? Send it back? He said, "Don't, don't worry. I'll take care of it." And he paid for it. Later on, the company paid him, but he stood. But it was a tobacco, which was rather small because Cameroon doesn't have a lot of large tobacco. It had a lot of small tobacco, and no, well, we put it aside and we let it stand. When it came the time to use the, this tobacco, or 
sell the samples to Dunhill. We put Monte Cruz with Cameroon. And that's that went overboard. Monte Cruz was the number one selling premium cigar brand in the United States. That was so it was a good combination. Then we had Mark Glaser, may he rest in peace. And he wanted also his brand. So we came out with Don Marcos. And Don Marcos was almost identical. To Monte Cruz. To Monte Cruz. Don Marcos sold two, three million cigars a year. Well, Monte Cruz was selling 12 million cigars a year. Wow, wow. <laughs> now, when you talk about those figures today, they may not seem that big. But no, they do. But back then, when the market was only 60 million cigars, those were big numbers. <laughs> so, it is... So, you want to you want to wrap up this and create? Yeah, I think it would be good maybe if we uh, uh, maybe wrap up like on the the history side, and then I would love to do uh, another segment that is more looking at your perspective on the state of the industry now. No, especially now that you're free of the yep. of the you know communication shackles of being tied to anybody. Uh, I think that would be a lot of fun to to do. Guys, I'm telling you all this. You cut whatever you feel. No, no, there will be no cutting. <laughs> there is no, there's no cutting. What we're going to do is we'll, we'll have two episodes. Uh, but, uh, this isn't the cigar. There's no quality control around here. <laughs> you put whatever you think. Nothing, nothing ends up on the... <laughs> you cut whatever you think. <laughs> this, this, uh, I'm not going to be upset. No, no, no. This is, pure, this is a pure picadura product that we're putting out. Uh, this is the Cuban sandwich of podcasts. <laughs> so, um, uh, th- This is actually... This is wonderful. Like this is stuff that that our listeners yeah. don't get to listen to with this uh, perspective on the history of the industry. I, I can't remember the last time we did a podcast where I think both of us were thinking, "I've never heard that before." Yep, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so no, it's it's really good. Yeah. So that's not to say let's cut it off now, but let's let's kind of move toward like wrapping up the that sort of historical segment. Okay. And then and then get into more present stuff. So then, in we, the we started the operation in Canary Islands. And we developed our first market was England because England also thought that, <clears throat> or the importers in England thought that the United Kingdom was going to follow the American trend to put an embargo on Cuban tobacco or Cuban products. Okay. Huh. Which they did not. It never happened, yeah. So they never sold those cigars. And they were Cuban cigars. I mean, the, the, all the tobacco, wrapper, binder, filler, everything was Cuban. This is still in the early time of, of the no, factory. We're, we're, so going, is, we're, we're going back to back, the 60s now. We're going back uh, late 60s. Yep. And <clears throat> at that time, they sold those those cigars back. They sold them back to you. Yeah. Okay. We bought them. So now you're sitting on a gold mine. Right. And we did. 
and we sold those cigars. What were those cigars like? At a very, very good price. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> at a very good price, but. <laughs> but what was that? What was that like? So you know, that's a very interesting situation because you've got, you know, these these sort of last Cuban cigars that you guys are able to make. You ship them out. You say, okay, sayonara. Those are gone, and now you've moved on to other tobaccos. But now suddenly, you are sold those back. When you smoked those, what were those like? Very good, because and they've been aged all this time. They had been they had been held in aging. Yeah, in the UK, so great, great cigars, and we sold them right away. I mean, it was in less than two months, the whole inventory was well, gone. Yeah, what was that? Well, how many cigars are we talking? We are about six hundred thousand cigars. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a heck of a lot. But no, but that's awesome because you've got this, you know, six hundred thousand, half a million cigars of, of, uh, of Cuban tobacco when no one has Cuban tobacco at this point. And that was, that was a thing. Cuba has never sold pre, uh, <clears throat> premium tobacco to anybody. They have kept that all themselves. And we were the last one to get Cuban tobacco from the United States. And that's how we got it. But then we couldn't buy anymore. As a matter of fact, we bought, uh, it was like 60 bales of candela tobacco, Cuban-grown candela that were in the United States. And I said, I don't think we should bring everything to Canaries. Let's bring in 20 bales and see what happens. Because there was a lot of uncertainty about the duration of the embargo and everything else. But let's bring 20 bales and see what happens. And let's see what is the taste of the Americans about candela tobacco. Today you hardly see any candela And maybe somebody comes out with a candela. Yeah, and, and more gimmicky now. And, right. It's a gimmick. But at the time, it was a big... Yeah, it was another shade. It was, you know, you had you had the Colorado, you had the Maduro, but you had on the very light side, you had Candela. It was but, one of the shades. <clears throat> you know, uh, Candela was the big seller of Cuban tobacco in the United States. It was not the natural. It was the Candela. So we brought in 20 pails. And the funny thing in life, we had to burn them because we couldn't use it. Europe wouldn't use candela; they couldn't. And they were, you know, they were in stock, so we burned them. We threw gasoline on them and <laughs> set fire to them. Such is life. C'est la vie. C'est la vie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so then let's uh, let's get to let's move past this and go in the eighties when you when you start to well well when the company is is sold right sold to consolidated we sold in seventy four oh in seventy four in okay. seventy four we sold to consolidated Gulf and Western whatever <clears throat> and I stayed with the company until seventy six okay and then I went to Brazil. And I started an operation in Brazil. And 
in Brazil at the time was a very good, very good opportunity, I thought, but also very difficult because Brazil, the imports of Brazil were not accepted to import anything. So they weren't, they weren't uh, thought highly of here in the U.S. market no. or anywhere? They did not. They, you never saw any Brazilian cigars in the United States. Maybe you saw a little bit of Surdic in the tin can, but that was, you know, like a, a, a German or a Dutch cigar, yeah. not a premium cigar. So we were doing business in Brazil, and we did some business, good business in Brazil, but not in the United States. It was later on, after Brazil became a democracy, that it opened up the market. But then it was, for me, it was too late. I left the company in Brazil and came to work for General Cigar. And this was in 82. So in 82, you joined General. I joined General. And so what was your role when you first started at, at General? I was in charge of the operations in Dominican and Jamaica. So I was in charge of those operations. There was a, a pretty popular cigar that came out of Jamaica. The, the Macanudo. <laughs> Macanudo. But you know, Macanudo had a problem. There were a lot of Macanudos which would not draw very well. And that was the biggest complaint about Macanudo. Was there a reason for that? Uh, putting too much tobacco. Okay. Putting too much tobacco. And we did a lot of things to change that. And eventually, we got over it, and it became much better. Then the boom came on, and then we had a bigger opportunity, and people started overseeing. The, when I see overseeing, that's not the right word, but they were not as keen on... So the quality control suffered. Suffered. Yeah. But we we kept we kept a good a good amount. And then <clears throat> I was with uh, with a company until ninety seven. In ninety seven, I was approached by Tabacalera of Spain. Yep. And I joined Tabacalera. And. I left General Cigar, went to Honduras, Nicaragua, and that's where I went until... And Tabacalera, uh, again, to clarify for people, because people may not know, uh, Tabacalera would be what today is Alteris, what we know as Alteris okay. here in the U.S., I'll, I'll, which is Montecristo. Tabaca Tabacalera, and the, in, in, in this thing of Tabacalera, Tabacalera... In, the, in, the, in my time in Tabacalera, they bought 49% of Habanos. Yes. So that was something they had, and I was not very pleased with it, but that's besides the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they basically bought stolen property. Uh, yeah. And uh, regardless of what anybody says... He was giving half a billion dollars to the Cuban government. 
which to me was very bad. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that, that hurts. But that's eventually I left uh, Altadis. I was with Altadis for three years, and I left Altadis because Altadis actually happened in 2000, and I was with uh, from 97 to 2001. I was with Tabacalera and then Altadis, all the same thing. And I left the company. And I got a call from Edgar Sr. You're talking Edgar Coleman Sr. Edgar Coleman Sr. Mm-hmm. And said, what are you doing? I said, Edgar, right now I'm not doing anything. I am completely out of the tobacco world. I am a free agent. He says, well, why don't you come over to New York and we'll talk. Okay. So I went to New York. When I left New York, I was working again for General Cigar Company. <laughs> <laughs> but that, and that's where I stayed until I retired. Um, to me, Edgar Coleman Sr., was a very special guy. I have not seen anybody so keen on quality as Edgar Sr. I have never seen anybody. And believe me, I have been there. Yeah, yeah, we got that. <laughs> I have been there. But I, I really love the guy, and to me, he's a great master. And kept on, kept on going. What I'm going to say now, and you may not want to publish this, but my feeling is something somebody told me years ago when we sold the company to go off at Western, and I didn't believe it. And he told me, Benji, corporations are for mass market. Family companies are for premium cigars. At the time, I didn't believe it. I said, hell, with all the backing, all the money of Gulf and Western uh, consolidated, they can really take this place and boom. Yeah, they can blow it up. It wasn't that way. They had their, their mass market, which they took very good care of. And we still still stayed with us. Eventually, what was in Canary Islands was sent over to La Romana. And that's how La Romana really developed. Because La Romana at the time only had Primo del Rey, which was not a very high-priced cigar. It was selling, but not. But then, they, value. then they got all these big brands and they really grew up. <clears throat> uh, when I came to 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 uh, Tabacalera, at first it was only Tabacalera Nacional Dominicana. And we didn't, we didn't do anything other than that 
en Tabacalera San Cristóbal, which was in, uh, in Honduras. And we had a side operation in Nicaragua, in Ocotal, Nicaragua, but it was a, a rather smaller operation. But we really had the brand Romeo, and we grew up Romeo, and it was, it was very thrilling. But I left, and I started working with General. And the, <clears throat> the main thing I did with General was walk through the countries, talking about cigars and talking to people about all these things. And it was very, very interesting. So you're talking uh, your second go-around as second, general was more of, a, of an ambassador type of role. Right, yeah. right. But it was, it was great. I, I, I loved it. I got to know a lot of people. I got to meet a lot of people. Unfortunately, so many that a lot of times I don't remember them. <laughs> and it, it's really difficult for me. Yeah, it's a little painful. When someone knows all about you and you can't remember them. Yeah. I can't. It's, it's, it's something that... But as I said... But that's the price of spending so much time in this business. And then you would go to a store or make an event, and the event would last three, four yeah, hours. Sure. And you meet these people during three or four hours, and you're out, and you go somewhere else, and oh, my God. But I always said the same thing. Talk about tobaccos. Talk about the preparations. Talk about how to make a better product. And that. But what I'm going to say today, you might or might not like it or publish it. But what I said before, mass market is corporate. Premium is private companies. And you see that happening today. You see all these smaller companies. And I say, when I say smaller companies, I'm not going to uh, compare uh, uh, Fuente with Altavis or General or Swisher. Uh, they are big companies. However, Fuente... It's a private company. Private family-owned. Family yeah, what you're talking about is family-owned company family versus owned company. what we would call maybe conglomerates. Well, maybe I, I don't use the right words a lot of times. No, right? no, no. That's just a different way <laughs> so to this say is, it, This is what I want to say. It's a, it's a family company. And you see, all these companies, they are smaller than the conglomerates. But they have a very good business. They have a very good business. And when you hear all the rumors that go in the industry about large corporations, you say, well, am I right? I think so. <laughs> I think so. But then a lot of people on this conglomerate would not like to hear me say this. Because they think they have the. Well, I, th I think the small companies, the private companies, the privately owned companies are the future of this industry, of the premium, 
Yeah, we're talking strictly premium cigars. When you talk about mass market, that's something else. I don't get involved with that. But I love premium.